Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. chapter 9. We're going to look at this story verse by verse. I've got a lot that I want to say, so I'm going to stick to my script pretty closely here, but we'll see what happens. Um, We're going to be looking at a story about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, and the story is what's known as the transfiguration. Um, Transfiguration is a weird word, but it's basically just a fancy way uh, of saying transformation, really at an identical meaning. It comes from the Greek word where we get metamorphosis. So we understand that from the world of nature where it's the process of an organism changing or shifting shape from one kind of thing to another. And so we see this happening when a a tadpole becomes a frog or when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. They go through metamorphosis or in other words, they have a transfiguration, okay? In our text today, Jesus is the one who goes through a transfiguration. And it's not just in some spiritual sense, like his life is transformed, but in a very literal sense. If we read the passage and take it seriously, he goes through a metamorphosis physically. His appearance actually changes. His body adapts and shifts, and he looks totally different, which is just kind of a crazy story, right? Um, And it's one of those places in the Bible that if we're honest, we're going, what's going on here? Here's the thing. I spent hours and hours in the text this week studying this story and learning from all different kind of perspectives. And I learned a whole lot. But even after all that, I'm still reading this story going, what is going on here? (laughs) This is a very strange and mysterious story, especially the way the writer of Luke's gospel tells it. Which leads me to believe that the mysteriousness of the story of Christ's transfiguration is actually a feature, not a bug. Meaning, I think that if Luke and the other gospel writers wanted to try to fill us in and give us a whole bunch of information to help us understand what's going on here, they would have done that, but they don't. Instead, they just tell the story, and they invite us as readers to get caught up in it, to enter into it rather than trying to explain it. So there is an element of mystery here that we're going to embrace. After all, it's a story, not a spreadsheet. So we're going to enter the story together. We're going to walk through verse by verse, and I want to invite you to come with me. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up on a mountain to pray. So our first question is, when does this story take place? Well, he tells us it happens about eight days after Jesus said something. So we need to go back eight days. Let's go back one verse. Verse 27, Jesus says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Okay. So within the context of Luke's narrative, eight days earlier, Jesus is talking to a group of his disciples and he says to them that some of them are going to see the kingdom of God before they die. 
Now, there's been lots of speculation and different theories about what Jesus is referring to, what he's talking about when he says that they'll see the kingdom of God. But if you look at it narratively, it's pretty clear that Luke wants his readers to connect verse 28 with verse 27. So when does this story happen? It happens about eight days after Jesus tells his disciples that some of them are going to see God's kingdom with their own eyes before they die. So that's when it happens. Next question is where? Verse 28 tells us that it happens on a mountain. It doesn't tell us which mountain. It just says a mountain. Um, The two most common guesses are either Mount Tabor the one in Israel, not the one in Portland, or or Mount Hermon, also the one in Israel, not the one in California. Luke doesn't tell us which mountain, um, but he tells us it happens on a mountain. Next question, who are the characters in this story? Well, Luke tells us that it's Jesus and then three of his disciples, Peter, and then these two brothers named James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These are the same three disciples that were with Jesus in the story we looked at a few weeks ago of the miraculous catch, these three fishermen, who Jesus said, throw your nets to the other side of the boat. These are the same three guys. And we see this multiple times throughout the gospel. So apparently we know that Jesus had these 12 disciples that he designated as his apostles. So within the crowd of disciples, he has this kind of inner circle of 12 But also, within the circle of 12, he also has this smaller circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And it's with these three that he invests extra time. He invites them places with him that he doesn't invite the others. Why did he choose Peter, James, and John? We don't know. Were the other nine disciples kind of ticked about it? Probably. But we're not actually told. So for whatever reason, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to take a hike with him up to the top of a mountain. Last question for this verse, why are they hiking up the mountain? Verse 28 tells us to pray. They were going up the mountain to pray. So mountains, all throughout the story of the Bible, are often places where God's people encounter God in a significant way. Mountains are depicted uh, in the scriptures as what the Celtic Christians called thin places, places where the veil between heaven and earth is especially thin. Um, I'm sure that in this room, in this town, with this view, many of you have had literal mountaintop experiences out in the beauty of nature, climbing up a hill or a mountain and having a sense of God's glory or wonder or presence there. They do tend to be thin places for many people. Personally, I enjoy the view of the mountain from the ground. I don't need to get on top of it, um, but I know for a lot of you that that's your thing. So Jesus takes these guys up to a mountain to spend time in prayer. So that's where our story starts. Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Okay, so here's where we get to Jesus' metamorphosis. While he's praying, his face starts to morph and his clothes start radiating this blinding white light. Now Luke moves on pretty quickly in his storytelling here 
uh, without trying to explain much, but I'm guessing we have a few questions. And so um, let's, let's just, let's talk for a moment. In, in short, here's my best stab at trying to describe what's going on here. Here's how I would sum it up. On the Mount of Transfiguration, for the first and only time in Jesus' life, who he is on the inside becomes visible on the outside. Who Jesus is on the inside is made visible on the outside. And so as Christians, we believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, fully human and fully divine. And in his incarnation, he took on human flesh. So if you were to look at Jesus, he doesn't look like the God-man. He just looks like a man, a rather unremarkable man, we think. If you look at him, he just looks like a man. But here on the mountaintop, who he is in his true nature, who he is on the inside, becomes visible on the outside. His appearance is transfigured or transformed into something else. But it's not like he's transforming into something totally different or random or new. He's transforming into what he truly is, okay? Which, again, this is pretty confusing. Uh, think about it like this. What happens to Jesus in his transfiguration is just like what happens to the great Wizard of Oz when, to when Toto pulls the curtain back, except the exact opposite, okay? So in the Wizard of Oz, my kids, we started that movie. They got freaked out, and we didn't get very far. Um, so maybe this is a dated reference, but... Um, this great powerful Oz with fire and smoke and this giant talking head and everybody's afraid of him but when the curtain is pulled back you see that the great wizard of Oz is just this tiny scared old man with levers and a microphone and so um, he looks big and strong and powerful on the outside but when the curtain's pulled back you see that he's just a little old man with Jesus, when you look at him, he looks to be an ordinary man. But when the curtain is pulled back, you see that he is Yahweh, the great creator and redeemer of the universe, come to us in the form of a human. And so in the transfiguration, who Jesus is on the inside becomes visible to the outside, exactly like the Wizard of Oz, except exactly the opposite. Does that clear it up? Here's another way of putting it. Um, what we have in Luke 9 is the narrative version of the theological truth that the author of Hebrews uses to open his or her letter. Hebrews chapter 1, in the past, he says, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Listen to this. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, the author of Hebrews is explaining kind of at a theological level who Jesus is. 
and what is true about his nature. And that's essentially what we see happening narratively in Luke 9. On, on this mount, Jesus radiates the glory of God that has somehow been made incarnate within his human body. So this is why this text is fitting as we close the season of Epiphany and begin to move into the season of Lent. Epiphany, I know, is kind of one of the more obscure and confusing seasons of the church calendar for many of us. Epiphany is essentially a season set apart to ask this question. Who is this Jesus? At Christmas, we celebrate his birth. At Good Friday, we commemorate his crucifixion. At Easter Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. Epiphany is that time in the middle where we say, who is this Jesus? And in his transfiguration, we're giving an epiphany of God like none other. A revelation that Jesus truly is the God-man the exact representation of God's being, the creator who lowered and limited himself in joining his creation. Jesus is God who has come to us as a man. So that's at least part of what's happening here as Jesus goes through a metamorphosis. But the story keeps going and actually gets even a little bit more interesting. So Verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay, so now two more characters are introduced into the story. Moses and Elijah, who are these two prominent characters in the Old Testament, which is kind of the prequel to the Gospels in the New Testament. So, uh, questions. How did Moses and Elijah get there? We do not know. Uh, Next question, how did the disciples recognize Moses and Elijah? (laughs) Because they had been dead for a thousand years or so. We also don't know. Um, Why are they there? There's a lot of theories about this. Let me give you two of the most compelling, um, condensed my own words. The first, why are Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? The first is, they're there as a sign of God's kingdom. They're there as a sign of God's kingdom. So um, before the gospel writers picked up this story, there had been what we might call a 400-year pause in the narrative. So the last thing that God's people had heard from God was from the prophet Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament. And Malachi ends his prophecy with this promise that one day God would come and he would return to his people as a judge, but ultimately as a redeemer to rescue them and to restore them. So look at the final verses in the book of Malachi and notice what he's talking about. Malachi 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. These are literally the final verses in the Old Testament. These are the last words that God spoke to his people through the prophets before this great silence. And so the people of God had literally been told, think about Moses and look for Elijah. And for hundreds of years, that's what they've been doing. And now, on this mountaintop, Moses and Elijah appear side 
by side with Jesus. And so the first thing that's happening here is that God is showing his people that his kingdom is about to show up in a way that they've never seen before. There's something going on there like that. So first, they're a sign of God's kingdom, and secondly, they're there as a symbol of God's revelation. So Moses is the name that we typically associate with the part of the Old Testament that we call the law. It's the first five books of, of the Bible, and they, are God, they contain God's foundational word that brought about creation and salvation and this community of redemption into being. And so Bible scholars and theologians sometimes use the word Moses as a shorthand to refer to the entire law or Torah. So Moses is associated with the Old Testament that we call the law. And Elijah is the name that we typically associate with the part of the Old Testament that we call the prophets, which is the prophetic word of God that gets his people back on track when they've strayed away from him. So Elijah representing the prophets. And so for Moses and Elijah to be there together talking with Jesus, it's like the entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets all coming together in this one epic moment. It's like this is where this whole story has been going for thousands of years. This is what the law and the prophets were pointing to the whole time. Everything in Moses, everything in Elijah, the entirety of our Old Testament, it's all pointing to Jesus. And now he is here. So Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are standing on top of this mountain. They're surrounded by light, and they're having a conversation. What are they talking about? Verse 31 says they were speaking about Jesus' departure. Or literally, his exodus. So just like Moses had led God's people out of slavery and into the promised land in the first exodus, Jesus is getting ready to lead a second exodus, which we know his departure is also a reference to his death. That's what they're talking about, about what is about to happen in this great story. So this is a crazy moment. And this is essentially... Um, it feels like an Old Testament story in the middle of the New Testament, right? And Jesus is lit up like the sun. <laughs> Two ancient prophets show up out of nowhere. Space and time are basically completely rearranged. This is the kind of thing that no human being has ever witnessed before. What are the disciples doing? In verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. <laughs> Oh, man, these are my guys. <laughs> but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Okay. So remember, Jesus had taken them up the mountain to pray. They didn't know this was what was going to happen. They just thought they were going to pray like they usually did. And apparently, while Jesus is praying, these guys are having a hard time staying awake. They keep nodding off. But now there's this huge light show going off, and they see Jesus standing there with Moses and Elijah. And who knows what they're thinking, right? If I was Peter, James, or John, I'd be wondering, I wonder where those mushrooms we had for breakfast came from, because <laughs> this doesn't seem normal. 
Um, so they're kind of coming, coming to life here, trying to believe their eyes. And then, verse 33, as the men were leaving, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. <laughs> so uh, Peter, I love this. Peter notices that Moses and Elijah are taking off <laughs> as they're leaving. And he's like, no, don't leave yet. This is great. Hold, hold on a minute. All right, I'm going to build some shelters for us. Just let me run down the mountain real quick. I'm going to get some lumber and some tools. I'm, I'll be right back. I'll build a few shelters, and then we can hang out. So it'll just take a minute. Um, now, there's different theories about why Peter wants to build shelters. The first is that shelter is essentially the same word as tabernacle. And so in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was this giant tent that God had his people build so that they would have a place to go and to encounter his presence, a place to go and to worship. And so maybe Peter wanted to commemorate this moment by building three tabernacles, three places of worship. Or maybe some scholars think that this whole thing was happening during the annual Jewish celebration called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, this was an annual celebration where all of Israel basically went and spent an entire week living out in the wilderness in these little tabernacles to remember how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So basically an all-church all campout every summer where we go set up tents and uh, enjoy creation together. So maybe that's what Peter was thinking, but we don't know for sure. Here's what I love about the way Luke tells the story. At the end of verse 33, we get this little parent parenthetical statement, Peter didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> so Luke basically breaks the fourth wall here, right? Which is something an actor does on stage or on screen when they turn and talk to the audience. Luke looks directly at the camera and basically does a Jim Halpert, right? <laughs> like, I hope you got this on camera because this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, I just love it. Um, now, here's what's kind of funny. Eventually, Peter did get his way. This is the church of the transfiguration. Um, I've got a picture of it here. And it was built by the Catholic Church about 100 years ago on Mount Tabor in Israel so that Christians could have a place to worship in the spot this all went down. And so Peter may not have known what he was saying, but it did kind of happen eventually, and now there is a tabernacle of sorts on uh, this mountain. So here's what happens next. Verse 34, while he was speaking, not knowing what he's saying, he's just talking. While he's speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So this huge, dense glory cloud appears and surrounds them on the mountaintop. And the disciples are terrified. Now why are they so afraid? Not just because of a strange weather incident, but because throughout the story of God and his people, God's glory often appears in the form of a cloud. When God was leading the Israelites through the wilderness, he showed himself to them as the form of this bright cloud in the sky that they were to follow. 
And this cloud was so powerful that anyone who got too close to it would die. So the disciples see this cloud and they freak out. But then a voice comes from the cloud. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, you know that there's one other time in his life where something really similar happens. When is that? His baptism. If we go back a few chapters in Luke real quickly, in Luke 3, we see a similar situation. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So notice that in both cases, this voice from heaven affirms Jesus' identity as the beloved son of the father. But there's some differences. Think about who the voice is speaking to. In Luke, at Jesus' baptism, the voice comes from heaven and says, you are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. The voice of the father speaking in second person. But at the transfiguration, the voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now speaking in the third person. So in the first, the father speaks to his son. In the second, the father speaks about his son. The first time the father speaks, it's for Jesus. It's to affirm Jesus' identity as his beloved son. He speaks this public word of loving affirmation, grounding Jesus' identity and preparing him for the work that is to come. But this time, who's God talking to? Not to Jesus, but to the disciples. This time it wasn't for Jesus' sake, it was for their, their sake. Which is then when we get to the only command, the only command that's given in this whole story. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's like the whole reason that this thing happens is so that Peter, James, and John will know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, the Chosen One. And so that their salvation might come by listening to his voice and believing what he says. Listen to him. And finally, verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So the cloud disappears. Moses and Elijah disappear. Jesus looks like himself again. And the disciples know that they have just experienced something so sacred, so holy, and so profound that they better not tell a soul. At least not yet. One of the biggest questions I've wrestled with all week in trying to understand what this story is here to teach us has to do with why did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, and why is it recorded 
in the Gospels. And I think the reason that this story happens wasn't for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of his three disciples that were with him that day. And the truth is, I found this really hard to believe as I studied this week, that the reason this whole event occurred in the first place was for these three guys. I struggle with that, and I don't know if you do, but I tend to have a view of God that makes it really easy for me to believe that he has a grand mission that he's on in the world, the reconciliation of all things, and that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I have this grand view of God that he's up there, that he's out there, that he's doing his work all around us, and I trust that, and I find hope in that. And yet I struggle to believe that every once in a while, maybe God has something special he wants to do just for me. But if this story is about the God who reveals himself to us in Jesus, then what we have is a God who cares not just about all things, but who cares about you and cares about me who knows us and loves us and wants to show up in our lives in special and unexpected ways. So why does the transfiguration happen? It happens for Peter, James, and John. A special gift of grace just for them. And in a way, this transfiguration becomes a pattern for our transfiguration. See, metamorphosis is the same word that's used to describe what Jesus wants to do in the lives of his people. As he disciples us, we also are transformed or transfigured into people who are able to see him in all the unexpected places. I'll close with this from Frederick Buechner. It's as strange a scene as there is in the Gospels. Even without the voice from the cloud to explain it, they had no doubt what they were witnessing. It was Jesus of Nazareth, all right, the man they'd tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brothers they knew, the one they'd seen as hungry, tired, and footsore as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the Christ in his glory. It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness his face so afire with it that they were almost blinded. Even with us, something like that happens once in a while. The face of a man walking with his child in the park, of a woman baking bread, of sometimes even the unlikeliest person listening to a concert, say, or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in, or just having a beer at a Saturday baseball game in July. Every once and so often, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive, transfigures the human face that it's almost beyond bearing. And so God shows up for his disciples 
in the transfiguration of Jesus, not just for their warm fuzzies, but for the formation of their faith. Knowing that in just a short period of time, they were going to need all the strength they could get as this transfigured God-man goes to his cross and dies for us. Because ultimately, we can only make sense of the mystery of Jesus when we hold the tension between the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Calvary. Between glory and suffering, between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Between the transformation that Jesus has for us and all the world and the reality of our brokenness and the desperation of all creation. Father God, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your son. We're grateful for the grand narrative and the grand revelation that that Jesus is for us and for all of creation. And we're also grateful for the small, personal, unexpected ways that you would choose to show up in our lives. And so God, I pray that we, like these three disciples, would be faithful in our obedient love to follow Jesus up the mountain in prayer, to set aside place in our lives, place in our schedules, place in our hearts and minds, so that if you want to reveal yourself to us, give us an epiphany of yourself, that we are there and that we're paying attention. We thank you that you are working all things together, that you're bigger than we could ever dream but you're also closer than we could ever imagine. And you have given yourself to us in your son. We receive you again today, Lord Jesus. Amen.